Hello, welcome to Empty Plates, a podcast by Bear Kitchen. Empty Plates is a podcast about food and memory. I'm your host, founder of Bear Kitchen, Anjali B.S., and I believe that every plate tells a story. Today's guest is an author, wellness expert, and a chai extraordinaire, none other than Mira Manik, the queen of chai. Mira is an author of two books, a beautiful cookbook, Saffron and Soul, and Brajna, a book about Ayurvedic rituals for happiness. She has hosted a huge array of events, from supper clubs to well-being talks, and also runs her own retreats. As well as that, Mira is an abundant well of positivity and vibrance, and it's a really good friend of mine. So I'm really happy to be speaking with her today about her empty plates. Hey Mira, how are you? Hi Anjali, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be recording this podcast with, as you said, a very good friend of mine. <laughs> and um, I love the name Empty Plates. So I'm thrilled to be on and I can't wait to get started. Amazing. It's a crisp October morning. How are you doing otherwise? Yes, I mean, it's nice to see some sunshine come through after a few days of drizzly rain um but it's been such a lovely summer and i feel like i've really settled into and really made the most of being outdoors and going for runs and walks and i think lockdown this situation which you know seemed initially like it would last for a, a few months obviously has continued now and we're deep in it i feel like it's transformed me in a way and let me and allowed me to take some time to really reflect on elements of my life in a way that i wasn't planning to do and it's been really good for me in many ways. It's really fascinating that you say that because I feel like that that is the sense for a lot of people even though there is a there was an initially a frustration of freedom being taken away but after a while we all recognize that almost a feeling of cocooning is really nice and being able to hibernate around the people that you love is a once in a life opportunity that we'll, we're never going to get again. Um, I was thinking actually, now that we're in the colder months of the year, we naturally hibernate, but actually it's going to be quite nice because you don't have to go out into that cold, brazen weather to get to work. You can just stay inside, stay warm, stay cozy. When you say transformative in the last few months, what do you feel was like the most transformative thing for you? Initially, for me, it was the fitness element where I went outdoors and started running. And that's something I never thought I'd do. And it was really liberating the way because there's many things that we think we can't do or we put blockages in our mind against certain things because we don't like them. But once you overcome that, and I feel like, you know, starting to run was quite a big change for me, um, even starting to love running. And it became a Sunday morning ritual. In fact, twice a week, but Sunday morning especially became a ritual. and I'd you know, drive to Kensington and start running. And I had a route. And I know I wrote a book about rituals, but I'm not one to stick to things always. Um, And I really stuck to this. And it did me so much good in, obviously, the physical sense, but also in many ways, mentally, you know, overcoming mind blockages, but also uh, realizing the you know, the effects of endorphins and serotonin pumping through my body and being in a really happy state after running. That was one of the things. And the other thing was food. And I think I've always struggled with, so I moved back to my parents just before lockdown. And I've always struggled with being in the house and working 
when I'm surrounded by food. And obviously being at your parents' house, there's more food than in your own apartment normally. Um, and I struggled with having food. Around. I always thought I'd struggled with having food around me and not being able to resist it while working. Because often when you're working and I was studying, um, I'm doing, I was doing a course at the beginning of lockdown, you know, there's a sense of boredom sometimes, not just boredom, but your, your mind is always flowing to food because I've always, you know, loved food. Um, and I have a sweet tooth, so I always want snacks. So I thought that I wouldn't be able to, like, that's where I think I need to go out and sit in a coffee shop and work. But actually sitting at home and working, I now can do that. I don't have any fears against doing that. And I really did have a fear. It is interesting, though, because during lockdown, I also moved back to my parents' house and, you know, living in central London and then moving up to Leicester and you're not surrounded by any normalcy. So you're in, you were in central London. I was in central London. We moved back to these sort of cocoons. And there is constant food. Also being as a part of an Indian household, food isn't just about eating it's also a big part of our culture because it's like there is a food for every feeling all of those foods aren't necessarily always healthy but they said there's always a snack available always something sweet available your second book Rajna is about uh, rituals for living Ayurvedic rituals for living and um, it's a phenomenal book and I, I, what I loved about the book it's just so straightforward and I think a lot of the times when we think about rituals they can come, become a little bit glamorized and we build such heavy rituals that the simplicity and the ease of being able to do it every day is too, is too difficult. Um, it goes. So I think when you're talking about the rituals of fitness, it's really, it has been a really powerful, I think it's been powerful for a lot of people when they realized that fitness is really, really important for their mental health, for their emotional health. And if they don't have the right hormonal release, it, you know, they're not going to feel good, especially when they're being kept indoors. But I want to, with you, when you're talking about ritual, I'd like to sort of dive right in to one of your first rituals as a child. I like this because this is not the version of you. I know this exists in you, but this is not the version of you that I know every day. So would you tell me your sort of your first memory of, of uh, food as a child? Absolutely. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and really, really trying to dig my mind um, and trying to figure out what it was that I, I remember about my childhood food. And it's funny, my first memory of food is really quite, well, it's not late in life, but it's as a child, maybe I was seven, eight, I can't remember how old I was. And I had skipped school because I wasn't feeling well. And it was a pretty cold day. I don't know why I remember that because I remember being cozy and having a chai or something. Anyway, I sat down at the kitchen table in my old house and my aunt had made me a toast, a white toast, simple white toast with slathered with, you know, melted butter and some honey. And I really loved honey as a child. And I had it with a cup of, well, it was a chai, but it's without the actual tea leaves. So it's spices and milk. And I remember it so well. I just really loved that comforting element of having honey on toast at home. And it's funny that that's my first, I've never thought about what my first food memory as a child is. And I'm sure there are others. I mean, I remember, I think my memories are mixed up with what people tell me. So, you know, my mom had told me that I was a fussy eater and I'd have spaghetti a lot, but I don't remember eating that spaghetti. So it's, I think that was more something that I've been told and that's a memory because I've been told it. Whereas the actual memory of having toast and honey is a real memory. So, and whenever I have um, honey or toast. Actually, I don't have it that often, but 
when I do think about it, I literally think, oh my God, I, it's like a hug inside my belly almost. And it really makes me, well, right now I'm dreaming of it actually. <laughs> um, and then I think I, the other memory that I have is growing up. So as a, maybe in my teenage years, from the age of 10 onwards, um, living in my current house and coming downstairs, having got ready at 6.30 in the morning, it being quite dark and having porridge first thing in the morning day after day after day because and my mum would have it on the table ready at 6 45 because we need to be out of the house at seven and I'd eat it and be out of the house at seven and it was it was so comforting and I still to this day porridge is still my favorite dish um along with dal but porridge is still one of my favorite dishes actually it you said to me, you told me a really cool recipe for porridge recently. I think you were eating porridge and you said you'd, you'd grated a courgette inside your porridge. Yeah, that's not something I did as a child. This is just something I came up with after I'd, someone had told me or maybe I'd read it on, on Instagram. I don't know where I'd read it, but I started grating in because somebody said that if you grate courgette and it doesn't have any flavor, you're obviously adding greens to your morning, but also you're bulking up. So you're having a larger bowl and you're not having a heavy, heavy breakfast because obviously if you have that many oats, you're going to feel a bit heavy. And I tend to love bigger bowls rather than smaller portions of porridge. So I started having that and actually I quite like it. In fact, I had it an hour ago today. So I, I, even now, in the, now that we're switching to winter time, that's when porridge becomes my sort of staple. In the summer, I, I don't have porridge that much. Like I can, I probably had it several times, if that it's more in the winter that I really crave it. But no, as a child, it was very simple porridge, probably with just a little bit of brown sugar and cinnamon, and that's it. So nice. If there is something about porridge that I think is sort of universal for everyone, that it's just that comfort, warm stodge first thing in the morning, even when you're, you know, you, you have to get into a wake-up routine. You're not really awake there. You're still struggling with accepting that it's a new day and then you've got this comfort and it's almost like having a blanket inside your stomach going it's okay you're gonna get through this yeah exactly a hug a belly hug for sure yeah I mean I haven't I haven't had porridge in a while but I think I I think you're making me want to have it today so I might after this go and have a nice big bowl and don't get me wrong I love complicating porridge sometimes you know adding in a bit of peanut butter and almond butter and putting in banana and like some coconut I don't know you can put in so many things sometimes I put turmeric in there but you know sometimes it's just about the simplicity one spice cinnamon sometimes I put my, my chai spice in there and a lot of people have have it with the chai spice actually people have told me that they have their daily porridge with my chai spice which is really delicious because it's got coconut sugar but I just mix it up you know often it's just cinnamon by itself this goes back to, you know, your book, Prajna, and also the way that you generally always push yourself to think is, well, with what I know of you is, why do, you know, the culture of wellness that we have today, and wellness for me is sort of, the definition of it is not actually true to its form, because wellness should be a lifestyle, it's easy, it's not about a trend. And I think in order for something to be really adopted, it has to be easy, going back to what you were saying, you know, it has to be easy, it has to be an easy ritual that settles with your body. So you can add a million components into your porridge, that's fine. But if you just want to have a simple bowl of porridge in the morning with some cinnamon and some sugar, that's totally fine too. It's just about generally having a balanced diet, no? Balance for sure. But I think it's also about trying not to overcomplicate ingredients for your staple food. 
so okay porridge if you're going to add stuff it's not you know you're adding a bit of this and a bit of that but when i talk about complicating i'm talking about um when you're making a curry or a dal or, or whatever you're making and you're adding in so many different ingredients you know you can keep it simple basically you don't need to overdose it with oil and you don't need to put like spices and then add something else and then add some cream and then you know what i mean so just keep food simple because actually our stomach is better able to process simple food yeah this is true i think especially with indian food that often goes amiss because indian food the way that it's been marketed especially in the uk and other countries too it looks quite complicated and it's a certain type of indian food from a certain region where it's much colder so they have heavier foods whereas you know Gujarati cuisine for example where you're from where i'm from is actually there's a bit much of a heavy use of sugar in our cuisine but it's quite simple you know the curries are quite watery they're not they're not overly cooked there's not heavy base sauces but there is a lot of snacking there's a little snacking in our culture on the subject of snacking could we move to your second plate which i my mouth is watering over so you grew up in England, you're in London, and then at some point, I think in your teenagers, your father took the family to over to Gujarat, and you were uh, in a city called Baroda, right? Yes. Tell us about that. What were you doing in Baroda? So my dad wanted to experiment and send myself, my brother and my cousin, we were all similar ages, to a school that he found in Baroda. So he'd travelled around India and tried to look for schools for us. So it was kind of an experiment. It was at an age where he could probably do that with our schools and take us out of school for a term or, or a year. The idea was a year. He struggled into finding the right school who would take us in India and have a similar sort of level of education but he found one in Baroda and um, I was very much against it my brother and my cousin didn't really care they were one year younger than me and they were a little bit more carefree I was very adamant that I shouldn't be going and why am I going so I was dead set against it from the very start we then went to Baroda and um, I really did have a great time like I remember that trip even I think I must have been 13 or 14 no yeah 13 or something 12 maybe um, and I remember that trip so well. Like I remember even the names of my friends in that school, even though until the last day I was still resisting it. And I was telling my dad, we need to leave, we need to leave. So, <laughs> so in terms of the actual food that I was going to tell you, because actually I do remember the food. I, I remember waking up and coming downstairs. And I think I told you about this. Not, this is not the mouth watering part, but I did take a Marmite bottle with me because I was so like, I was quite, quite not English in my ways, but very much like I need to stick to my own thing. And, uh, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm not Gujarati and that sort of thing. I was a bit of a rebel. And so I took my Marmite and I used to take it down every single day and put it on my toast before school every day. And the actual food I remember the most out of that trip is we had probably the best Indian or Gujarati snack shop right opposite the hotel that we were staying in. And so almost every day after school, we'd go there and get Kandvi and Dhokra. And oh my God, is that the best Gujarati snack ever? <laughs> and healthy snacking, of course, is chickpea flour. But you know, you can overdo these snacks as well. But I loved, loved, loved the Dhokra and Kandvi. And it was all fresh. And the Kandvi was rolled. So Kandvi is like a, it's made with chickpea flour, water, a bit of yogurt, spices, and then it's rolled. Um, it's It's cooked. And then it's, rolled flat on the surface and then made into rolls the way say for example pasta would be rolled is that how you'd explain that something like that 
Uh, I would say exactly how you said it, but I would say you, when you roll it out on the surface, it cools down and then you kind of roll it as if you're making a Swiss roll. Like Yes, 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 Swiss roll, exactly. And then you chop it into pieces and then you make, you temper some mustard seeds and some curry leaves and then sprinkle that on top and then some coconut and some coriander. Amazing. That's exactly it. It's the most delicious thing. It's like, that's the hardest thing with being a vegan because you're like, it's made with yogurt. But I did find a way to make it vegan and it's delicious with soy yogurt. Oh, yum. It is hard to make, you know, they had to get it that thin. It's quite yeah, an art. Yeah, it's an art. It's not easy. I totally resonate with you. When I was traveling in India and I was traveling to Gujarat by bus, you leave Bombay and you get to Gujarat at like 7 a.m. because I took an overnight bus when I was backpacking and I was like, brilliant. And then there's a stop at a restaurant, highway, like services, but they call it a restaurant and a hotel. And you're like, this is weird. What type of joint is this? But it's 7 a.m., gone to the bathroom, and then there's just these, like, we call it rekri. What would you call a rekri? It's, a, it's like a uh, food stand. Yeah. And it's just exactly what you were describing, but they would have, like, the hot gatia and, like, fried chilies Ooh. and kandvi and then tokra. And you just sit there at seven in the morning with a cup of chai going, oh, this is a great breakfast. Nom, 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 nom. So delicious. Yeah, I know. That is, that is the joy and the beauty of traveling in India, even though those journeys are so painful and, you know, you feel like you need to, like, have a good old stretch after it and need the loo desperately. But you come out and you find these rekris and you find the chai wala on the street and it's just all just tastes all the more delicious. So... Perfect. But going back to what you were, we were talking about in terms of simplicity and complicating food, I think what I meant is it's not about sort of making it curries and dals are fine. It's about the complicating, like you said, the snacks, but the layering, you know, they, they layer it with chutneys and then they layer it with a bit of gantia, which is the, or sev, which is the fried thing. And then they layer it with something else. And it's that layering that just complicates the ingredients that when you go into your stomach, it's almost like creating a firework reaction of like so many things going in. And I think a lot of stomachs can cope with it, but mine they can't cope with too overcomplicated food. So that's where it all comes in. That's where the simplicity comes into my life. It's really interesting you mentioned that because when, when we evaluate the Indian diet and Indian foods, culturally, a lot of the Indian community, I would say slightly older community, we can all say that Ayurvedic diet is really amazing and it's really powerful. And it's sort of, you know, it's a way of eating, it's a methodology. However, when you have the Indian diet, and it's sort of loosely got the Ayurvedic principles in there at some point, but if you're going to be on, uh, going to one of these street vendors and you're going to be having a chaat, that chaat has got fried food, it's got raw onions, it's got a green spicy coriander and green chili chutney. It's also got a tamarind chutney. Tamarind chutney is diuretic. Like, so your stomach is doing fireworks. It's going, well, chili, tamarind, like... What a, like how it's, it's not there's nothing that's really cooling that at the time and you need that constant cooling we've got a lot of fire in our diet not enough cooling all the time but I can't change it I think I'm a bit addicted to it if I'm absolutely honest with you yes it is delicious I think you know that's where Indian food got its sort of slightly more bad rep in terms of like being unhealthy but it has now, I think people have realized that there, there's the element of cooking at home and making it simple, making it really healthy yeah. and Ayurvedic. And there's the element of eat, eating in restaurants and having small dishes and snacks, which are 
a little bit more complex. And I think that there's place for both. Of course there is. Well, I think the main thing that comes up for me when I think about the Indian diet and I think about what the dishes we've talked about is that we have, we have a, high, a high volume of sugar content in our diet. We have a lot of rice. We have a lot of dal. We have a lot of breads like chapati, naan. And actually the proportion of green vegetables is actually quite small. All of the legumes we eat are really starchy. So uh, in terms of the way that the Indian food diet is, is marketed, it's quite sugar heavy. It's not obvious sugar, but it's, you know, when, you're, when your body's digesting, it's digesting in sugars. And it would be great to be able to sort of, I think with the work that you're doing with both of your books, like Saffron Soul and Brajna, is being able to introduce a more alkalizing diet to it, a more balanced diet to it, where it supports the, you know, the body's nervous system and it's in alignment in that way, but you're not losing out on flavor. You're, you know, but your, your body's welcoming it like a hug as opposed to feeling attacked. Yes, totally agree with that. Hmm. But then on the subject of more food and experiences, you've mentioned this beautiful traveling experience. So we've gone from London to Gujarat and now we're traveling to Rajasthan. Yes, 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 yes. That's a real strong memory when it comes to food. And I've written about this experience as well, just because it really stuck in my mind. I was with my family traveling around Rajasthan and we ended up one night under a blanket of stars in the desert of Jaisalmer which is deep in the desert in Rajasthan and um, obviously very warm and very hot we'd actually rode on camels that day as well and when we got to the destination now I don't remember why we were by these tents or you know whether it was an evening where we've been taken as tourists to sort of experience something. I don't remember all of that, but I remember sitting outside these tents and I remember having a dinner, sitting on sort of these stools, just elevated slightly from the desert floor and having dinner and not knowing what's in our dinner. So obviously these days, if we're eating that dinner, we'd put our torches on our phone and see what we were eating. But actually at that time, I remember thinking, oh my God, I have no idea. Two flies could have been fried in my dal and I'd, I'd have no clue. And I remember really laughing about that. I was with my brother and my cousin, I think, or maybe my sister was there as well and my parents. And I remember really, really enjoying that meal and just the whole experience of it. And I think that memory makes me realize how important food experiences are as opposed to just the food itself because that's what creates a memorable experience often and that really really sticks out in terms of experience and then you know on the way back I'm, I'm sure we took camels on the way back as well and it's one of those memories that I I remember my whole Rajasthan trip at that time just by that one memory that I've done that exact same trip really yeah on the camels you're riding into the sunset you're with Sherpas and there was dancers and it's an enchanting moment. These are like, and I say that we're so lucky to have moments like this, that, you know, you are in the middle of a desert and there are people that are helping to serve you food. And to, even though you might have a few, you know, extra bits of protein that you weren't catering, that you weren't imagining, <laughs> it's such a phenomenal experience. The most memorable experiences are often wrapped with travel for me, you know, and most often in India. I mean, I can't, I think, mo in fact, I can't think of any experience food-wise that's as memorable that's not India. And I can think of several others, you know, the Chaiwala calling out Chai, Chai, Chai on the, on the, on the, 
um, what do you call it, station, when you get into a station, when you've been on an overnight journey in India and just like opening your window or like just putting your hand out the window, giving him some money and having a chai when you've just woken up, like those sorts of things, you know, you can't recreate. It's interesting because when we think about India, what I think about like having lived there for so many years and you've been going to India your entire life, is that there is so much scarcity, but yet so much abundance. And even if one person is really poor, the relationship between scarcity and abundance when it comes to food, it's very, people are always giving of their food in India. doesn't matter what they don't have, they're giving of their food. And yes, there are people that go hungry, but there's a culture, I think, that's in our Indian DNA, which is we're all going to eat and food shouldn't really be that expensive. Um, it should be accessible. I don't know, like there was, it, it's affordable, which I really appreciate. Like a cup of chai costs five rupees. I know that there's a negative side of that because how much is the person making uh, that's selling the chai? But that accessibility for other people being able to, most people being able to afford a cup of chai is really amazing because we couldn't do that in the UK. You can get a coffee is 3.50 when you're, if you were on the side of a train platform or something. Yes. That's really, yeah, God, I miss India right now. I wouldn't want to be there. <laughs> in some hot weather i know i know memories like this really do take you back and you take a moment and you're like oh i'm really glad to have those memories and i really do miss india but actually i'm so glad i did all of that yeah when was the last time you went to india at the beginning of this year in january oh did you that was really in? yeah just before yeah it was lovely obviously can never get enough but you know i do love it and i go every year twice a year sometimes most of the time and i've spent many months there and I think, you know, every part of India, just like its language and its people and its culture, the food is so different in each part of India. And another memorable experience is going for these sort of nine day uh, spiritual festivals that I used to go for in Calcutta. And I knew I was very close to one particular family in Calcutta and I'd stay with them. And in the evening, sometimes we'd go to another, another person's house. Now in Calcutta, the culture is either Marwari or Bengali and there's, they're quite different, you know? And so I was always with the Mar. I don't actually know that many. In fact, I didn't know any Bengalis. I only knew Marwaris. So, and their culture is very, very different. They're sort of the outsiders, even though they're the insiders, they came from Rajasthan, I think, whereas the Bengalis are actually from Calcutta itself. But the Marwari is very, very wealthy. And so at, when you go to these Marwari houses, which have lifts in them and, you know, abundance of servants, and you go for a dinner, a mere dinner, and there's literally like a laid out banquet. And, and the interesting thing is that firstly, they're so giving. And secondly, the dessert always comes first. It's really bizarre. So even like you know, when it's stationed, so there's one person cooking the dessert, serving you something else and someone else making the dosa. And, but the, the sweet dish is always stationed at the very beginning, which is very weird. So what, what was it from that specific occasion? What sweet dishes do you remember? Were they Bengali dishes or were they Marwari? I know they were more Marwari. So like, I don't even remember, to be honest, because I never ate the sweet stuff. I do like Indian sweets, but only specific ones. I only like gajar halwa. And I only like sometimes Ras Malai, but not even. I think Gajar Halva and I can't remember what else. Mango something, like mango shikand or something. I love mango shikand. But that's not really a dessert. It's it's more of a it's more a part of your dish. But the point is that they were very lavish desserts and I cannot remember what they were because I never would I would never touch them. 
And I'd always come back from a, a, one of the spiritual sort of things that I'd go to in, in Rajasthan, weighing a little bit more, because even if I tried to resist the food, I just couldn't. I just had a thought. I wonder if, you know, in, in Gujarati, we'd say mitomodo, which is like sweet in the mouth. And when somebody comes to your house, what you do, first of all, is you would sweeten their mouth with something sweet. And the, the idea is that that relationship grows with sweetness, I think. I just wonder when, when you're going to their house, the reason the sweet is to serve first is that it's like sort of a sweetener of the friendship and the relationship. I guess I was wondering if it has the same sentiment, perhaps. Perhaps. I feel like I looked into the reason and asked them, but I can't recall what exactly it was. But you're, you, you might be right about that. I don't know. That could make sense, yeah. I like that. I, li- I do like that idea. Maybe we can give it that symbolism. Um, and also the other thing is that they'd have papar or poppadoms, which are not fried, at the end of the meal because apparently it soaks up the oil that you've had. And their food, oh my God, does it contain oil. So yeah, but it's very rich and very delicious. It's not like it's not like it's floating in oil, but it's just very tasty food. And it's also variety. They have s- immense variety. I want to now travel... To a different country with you because this has become a session of traveling so we've gone from london to india to india i think the conversation has been focused on gujarat and bengal i'm sure you could talk about bombay too but i think we're going to cross the country and we're going to fly west to africa and we'll fly to uganda to east africa so you lived in uganda for quite some years uh, tell us about that how was and your family's originally East African? Yes, my family's originally from Uganda and not many families went back. Well, some families went back, but in terms of percentage, it's a very, very low percentage. And one of those families happened to be the person that I married and was married to. And that's why I moved back. In fact, I actually got married in Uganda. And Uganda does, I do have memories in Uganda. Of course I do. It's funny, they're not totally wrapped in food because I didn't really enjoy like Ugandan food as such. So it's not like I went out to eat a lot, but I'd, I'd eat at home a lot and I'd eat a lot of Indian food and it was nice and I'd cook some of my own food as well. But I think the most memorable thing, and I know this sounds a little bit basic, but every time, and we, just, we used to travel a lot. My husband and I would be in Dubai and then back in Uganda and then in India. And I was just traveling a lot of the time. And at the time I was also a travel journalist. So it worked really well with the lifestyle that I was leading. And whenever I'd come back, we'd have rajma, which is the kidney bean curry, really sort of rich rajma with rice and yogurt. And that, the simplicity of that dish, every time I came back from a trip, that'll be the first meal I'd have. So I'd enter the house, go and have my shower, put my bags away and come down and have rajma, rice and, and yogurt. And that was like, if I think about one dish during my Ugandan years, that would be the one dish that would come to mind, even though it's not at all Ugandan. But the reason why I love it so much is because firstly, kidney beans are comforting. Rajma is a very typically Indian curry that sort of is eaten throughout India, actually. But also because as a child, my favorite curry growing up that my mum would make would be a kidney bean and potato curry. And even now, if she makes that, or if she makes a kidney bean curry, I would not be able to resist. Like, it's my favorite thing. So I think that's probably why, because it takes me back to my childhood and it's so comforting. And after a flight, you want that sort of comforting dish. And that's the one thing that comes to mind. Again, it's weird because until today, I've not thought about that. It's not, I never thought, oh, what's the food that I remember the most from 
you know, my days in Uganda. It's funny. Well, I think the relationship with a kidney bean curry is maybe similar to that of a bowl of porridge because it's slightly complex, carb, but it's hearty, it's warm. I think it hits a lot of the same buttons as porridge does and as soup does. And when it's served to you, and it's when it's been served to you by your parents, it's that, it's sort of just that relationship, it highlights that relationship with that person who made it too. So if you're away from home and you're in Uganda and someone's you know, feeding you the same thing that your mother would make for you, it's incredibly comforting, I can imagine. When I was living in India, there were certain things I would get made just so I had that feeling because you do get homesick and food is such an important part of that for you. It doesn't matter how you can cook yourself, I imagine. It's having those things served to you. You're like, yes, this is the feeling that I was looking for. I just wonder, when you were talking about you never really ate so much Ugandan food, and my dad's Ugandan, and my dad is one of those that didn't go back after they were thrown out because of Idi Amin in the 70s. So none of his family went back. I, so I don't really know much about the foods yet. What was the sort of local Ugandan cuisine? The Indians had a lot of, and even staple, I think, Ugandan food, uh, they had a lot of, uh, what do you call it, cassava mm. and a lot of um, matoki, which is plantain. It's actually, it's, well, I thought it was recently. My mum made it the other day. So it's actually, it's a banana family, but it's not plantain. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, I was like schooled on it very hard. But apparently okay, I thought it was. Okay, so matoki is not plantain. Oh my God, green bananas. That I did not know. How funny. Gosh, I, in fact, I have a recipe in my book. I have a recipe in my first book, Saffron Soul, which is made with madoki and I've written it's plantain. So maybe I'm wrong about that. But I thought I'd done the research then. I mean, in fact, I have done the research. So maybe some websites say it and maybe it's wrong. I don't maybe know. Maybe you're right. We'll have maybe to look I'm that not up. Wrong. Let's go with your right. She's probably like, you know. I don't know. Maybe I am wrong. But yeah, plantain, um, they used to, so they, in Uganda, even the locals, they have this quite a lot, is plantain mushed together with a peanut curry on top so it's called matoki and ugazi i think i'll have to look that up but yeah it's a peanut curry and the ugandans have a lot of this and um, my family sometimes makes it i've had it at home before and i've never taken to it really it just feels like a whole load of starchy stodge to me <laughs> which basically it is and lots of peanut <laughs> curry it's quite yummy it's very basic and it's very sort of you sort of when you taste it you realize why it could be a staple for somebody and that was basic that's the lot of ugandan that's the only thing i know about ugandan food other than that you know it's meaty i think um and i'm vegetarian so i don't know but i'll tell you where the sort of marriage or the sort of fusion comes in which is when our parents and our grandparents moved to uganda they took on certain vegetables and made curries from them so madoki which is plantain and then cassava which is what did we do we call mogo so they'd take these vegetables that were not found in india these root vegetables and they'd made curries from them mm. and even now in our house you know even now on a sunday sometimes my grandmother makes a motoki curry they love their mogo and their motoki and you know I, they love those things still and even now when like our family who lives in mombasa comes to london they'll bring things like that with them so they do have a very East African, East African Indian flavor is quite different to Indian Indian flavor. They did adapt and change their ways slightly when they came to East Africa. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's interesting because growing up in Leicester, the massive East African community there and 
we used to, there was a couple of pubs we used to go to that did, that specialised in this East African influenced Indian cuisine. And it was a lot of sizzlers, a lot of mogul. Jevro, Jevro's another one. Jev, it's Jevro, like, yeah, Kenyan Jevro is like the best. Maru- but I don't know if Jevro ever really existed in India. I think Jevro is something that came about in Africa. And, and now you get, in India, you get Bombay mix, but you don't actually... Chevros are apparently an East African thing. So Chevro is a combination of crunchy bits like Sev, crunchy fried dal, yeah. crunchy, what else is in there? I don't even know, but it's all nuts, mixed together. Uh, cashew nuts. Yeah, nuts, peanuts, cashew nuts, spices. exactly. With spices. And it's almost like having, like the way you, you would eat a granola out of a jar, <laughs> you would eat Chevro out of a jar. <laughs> but, but it's obviously not granola. I was intermittent fasting yesterday. And it's like 8 p.m. And I was like, right, I've not eaten much today. I took a bowl of chevro and made busu, which is you put, I put tamarind chutney in there, fresh, uh, like raw mango, raw tomato, some cucumber, some chili powder, lots of lemon and lots wow. of coriander and chili. And oh my God, it was just, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly what I need. It's all the wrong things, but together I need it. So delicious. Oh, yum. That does sound delicious. So we've gone from home to home to home to home, which is an amazing journey. And I think where I would like to go is to where it all began, which for me is a lot of it to do with your grandmother, your relationship with your grandmother in your, you know, in your public profile, the way you talk about food. You have this such beautiful, intimate relationship with her. And a lot of your knowledge is the sort of this exchange of stories and culture of food between you and your grandma. I think she's done some uh, pop-ups with you and some demonstrations with you. Well, actually, this time two years ago, today, two years ago, the memory popped up that we were in theatre together. So we actually, me and my grandmother and my mum also helped, we were actually doing a whole thing in theatre where they were cooking. I was relaying my grandmother's story and her ways of making things while she cooked. Oh, so beautiful. Do you think your grandmother's been a really fundamental part of your food journey? Yes, I would. But funnily enough, when I was thinking about food today, having read your questions, my mum popped up a lot more. But my grandmother's very much a part of that. And when it comes to sort of learning the food, when I got back from Uganda and living abroad and in Dubai, and I actually started learning the food, which is when my food career essentially began and my interest in cooking more I learned most of the techniques from her and the memories that come to mind when it comes to her food. I mean, her food is incredible and it's very, very similar to what you find in India. And that's what I realized when I traveled and now having come full circle, I'm fascinated by the fact that she left India as a very young child and didn't learn any cooking when she was there. Her story is very interesting, but I think that's left for another podcast. She then went to Mombasa. She wasn't brought up by her parents. She was brought up by her nanima, who is her mum's mum in the village in India, because her mum basically gave birth to her in the village that she was born in and then left her and took all her other children to Mombasa and then didn't come back for many years. So her mother effectively was her grandmother and she didn't accept the fact that this mother who'd come from Mombasa to collect her and having spent a month on the steamer boat was her mother. She just said, no, I'm not going to call her mum. And so she never went back with that. And then they had to come back two years later to collect her. 
and this time they forced her. So anyway, it's a very interesting story. But when it comes to food, she didn't actually learn any food until she got married because she went to Mombasa and within two years she was married to my grandfather at the age of 16 and moved to Uganda. So that's when she started learning how to cook from her mother-in-law. And actually, the, her dishes are therefore very sort of what my grandfather would have been used to from his mother. And to think that actually this food that has been passed down, these recipes that have been passed down generation to generation are so similar to what now I go back to a village in Gujarat and eat is quite incredible. You know, to actually taste the food in at home and think oh delicious 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 but actually then travel back and be like oh my god I can't tell these things apart so how is it possible that nothing has changed it's so phenomenal and the reason why I think this your grandmother is so important is that level of effort and that knowledge that they take in from such a young age and now how she's been able to carry that knowledge through multiple generations and she's, you know, you're her grandchild who now is taking all of that knowledge of food with her and hopefully carrying on. It's, it's sort of this, this talisman, you know, you, your family can give you so much, but this knowledge, this culture of food and language, this is still some of the things that can only be passed down from mother to mother, from, you know, to, to child. It's so beautiful. In terms of the actual recipes, like, you know, the her Gujarati dal, uh, it's just the best it's delicious and we were talking about this earlier but the the mix of masala spices the masala stuffed aubergines and potato curry is such a such a sort of treat to eat with peanuts sort of crunchy you're sort of crunching into peanuts when you eat that curry and there's lots of spices and there's a bit of jaggery because it's sweetened and Gujarati food is quite different because it has that sort of balance of lime and sugar yeah that's the curry that we call akushak. Yeah, so akaring anushak or akabatit anushak. And we, for some reason, call it havej masalo. So I think it just maybe varies from person to person. But yeah, havej masalo anushak. So, so it's delicious. Good. Just to put a bit of translation on this, aku means whole. And that's... Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, barelu means stuffed. <laughs> so aku and barelu. So stuffed... Whole stuffed aubergines. Curry. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> well Mira it's been so wonderful to to speak to you about this and I think what's going to be coming next is you and me doing a big Indian cooking section in the next few weeks because or I'm just going to come to Wembley and go and eat Kandvi and Jokra on the side of the road in Wembley and come see you oh my god we need to do that I'm now craving all those things and Marmite and honey <laughs> We just make a tally, you know, and then pull the empty plate and then you can empty the plate. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, that's what it's all about. And then we can actually show a little time lapse and put it on your, uh, on your Instagram as part of your sort of marketing campaign. I'm going to hold you to this. Everyone here, I'm going to hold Miramani to this. Can I just say one more thing before I go? Because actually it's a very memorable experience. Yeah. Amdavad, or Amdavad, um, the rooftop restaurant called Agassia. I having a tali on that rooftop restaurant is, is just such an experience and I still go back and do it. And I did it years ago and I still do it now and it's just amazing. So the next time you go to Ahmedabad, go to the rooftop. It's in the house of MG, which is one of my favorite boutique hotels in near, right on the brink or right on the sort of border of old town. Okay, amazing. I really like Ahmedabad as a city. 
I prefer it to Baroda. I think it's got like good, it's a good diversity of like Gujarati heritage, really delicious restaurants. What does, doesn't Agassi mean something? Does it mean? Yeah, it means outdoor? a balcony, right? Balcony. Okay. Mm. Balcony restaurant on the MG Hotel. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful. You're under the like sort of under the sky, even though Amdavad is just polluted and very loud. But it's lovely. You can if you have a clear night, you can you know see the stars. But otherwise, it's just beautifully lit and lanterns, and they just come and fill your tali up. You know, the minute you've eaten one rupee, another one comes. The minute you've eaten something, and it's like phenomenal variety, and it's all delicious. Well, on that delicious note. My mouth is watering. I think I might need to go and eat some food. I'm most definitely coming to eat all of this food towards your way in the next week or so. Mira, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been such an amazing journey of just understanding Indian food from a different perspective and how the role of food has played such an enormous role in your life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And why not follow Bear Kitchen on Instagram?